Welcome to the Markitecture Podcast. This is episode six. We have a special guest today. So in addition to Eric Franchi from Aperium Ventures, we have Kieran O'Kane, the partner of First Party Capital and the founder and CSO of Exchange Wire. Kieran, thank you for being here. Hello, Ari. Very exciting to be on your podcast. Thank you for an invite. Calling in from London? Yes, calling in from London from Hatton Garden, Farringdon, which is basically the beating heart of European ad tech. Basically, there's only ad tech and Jewish jewelers on the street, which is an interesting mix. Yes, I've been to that. I've been to your office and, uh, you know, I think you had me interviewed, but didn't warn me about the five floor walk up to get to. The, oh, no, the no, no. We, we've moved. We've moved <laughs> since. Sorry, we've moved down the street. So there's only one flight of stairs. So you're welcome to come back anytime. You won't have to walk up four flights of stairs this next time. All right. At my age, you know, you have to you have to triage <laughs> these media opportunities by the amount of stairs. Uh, so so probably most of our listeners have met you, have been to your conferences, have heard you speak. Uh, some people have called me an ad tech gadfly, but I think you're more of an ad tech ad fly than me. Um, you're, you have opinions, you are involved in European ad tech, and now you have a, a venture capital firm, um, first party capital that's investing primarily in European ad tech. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so why should our listeners, why should people in ad tech care about European ad tech? Well, it's a good question, Ari. And by the way, this is my first time on a, on a US podcast in 15 years, so 20 years doing this. Uh, so No way. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, the Americans just are afraid of me, I think. I, I feel like Bono here, and you too, like the Joshua Tree, breaking the United States, finally. But, That's uh, a great you. analogy. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> thanks for the, uh, the, the lovely intro, Ari. I suppose we could rewind a little bit. Like, you know, when, when we started um, Exchange War back in 2007, it was very much US focus. You know, we, we were focusing on the programmatic space here on an APAC. It was growing slower than the US market. And I guess over the last 10 years, we've seen sort of new companies come out of Europe, like, and sporadically, I would say, compared to the US, you know, you did the likes of Criteo, uh, Sticky Ads, Grapeshot, Unruly, Sociomantic. Well, most Sociomantic was mostly European based, uh, and Unruly to extent. But so you had kind of a sporadic companies coming out of here. So the US was still king. But over the last couple of years, I think we're seeing a sea change. I think a lot of that's got to do with the current privacy landscape and deprecation of IDs and cookies. Ironically, it kind of give companies the ability to scale globally easier. And I think what we're, what we're seeing now is sort of like fragmentation of markets. You know, you still have the United States, which is a monolithic media market. It just gobs of money in, in the market. Like, you know, a typical independent agency would be as big as a holding group in Europe. You know, um, you think about Horizon, the size of that. But what we have now is sort of a fragmentation in, in sort of global markets. You know, you've got the United States against the monolithic media market, and you've got sort of Europe as a privacy moat now, which is making it very difficult for any sort of company built or based off or sort of a framework to kind of operate in the market. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. That's mostly kind of down to like the GDPR uh, regulations passed by EU and and also sort of like the advent of sort of the privacy advocate, like there's quite a few of them here in Europe. Johnny Ryan and Max Schrem are, are, are well-known figures here and in globally for like taking down big behemoths like Facebook and others. So, so fragmentation, does that mean that European ad tech is really for the European market or is it global companies that are starting in Europe with the advantage of being sort of native to the uh, privacy environment there? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, Typically, you had companies sort of being built here for the, to try and get into the U.S. 
But I think companies have started to, to, to rethink the global space, right? So when you when you think about US ad tech right now, it is definitely built for US first because it's the easiest market, right? It's their native market, English speaking, and there's a huge media market there, right? So when European companies now, the good ones anywhere, they're being built, they're kind of being built for fragmentation and they're rethinking how they scale. They're almost sort of building themselves to be resold by others in other markets, sort of plug and play. So it, that is a very interesting sort of new piece of thinking around mad tech, as I call it, like in the region. So it does give European companies a bit of an edge. And, and certainly, I think companies building for this part of the world are thinking privacy first, first and foremost. So they can't depend on the UDID2s and all the rest of coming out. It just it just won't scale, Ari. Um, right. I keep telling people that here. It's just like I see all these sort of initiatives from the IAB um, Tech Lab. And while I'm a massive fan of like seller-defined audiences, the SDA stuff and contextual players, I think the ID stuff is going to fail just basically because of all those problems here. Yeah, I, I think this is a bit of a cultural issue too in that Americans are inherently very optimistic about the future. Uh, it's just part of our culture. And so when the cookie goes away, the American reaction is, well, what will replace it? Something will obviously replace it. And the European reaction is more more like, nope, nothing's replacing it. That's it's going to be a mess, and we'll work around that mess. Well, I, well, I think yeah, it's it's a bit like that. We're we're optimistic as well, but you know, we also kind of pull a page out of Marcus Aurelius' books. You know, with stoicism, you know, it's we have to embrace what's in front of us and and make the best of it. Like you know, and I don't see that as a, a, as a pessimistic view. It's just it's natural sort of evolution of the space. I think eventually American companies will have to come around to our thinking because there will be privacy laws in the US one way or the other. Right. You'd expect that. So let's just rattle off some some of the kind of next generation hot companies that are coming out of Europe. Obviously, MIQ is, you know, a pretty large company at this point with big uh, valuation and exit. They based originally in London, but a big expansion to the US. Infosum, the um, uh, clean room company, uh, originally based in London. Um, what, what are some other ones that are we should have top of mind? For us, we're making a big bet in Lumen. They're a tension-based company. Uh, they they basically had a have one of the biggest sort of eye tracking panels in the world, and they merged with Avocet, um, which Avocet has the sort of ad tech DNA, so it's tag-based measurement piece. I think that's a huge, huge opportunity and, and massively scalable. They're signing massive deals all over the world. Sorry to interrupt. It's, a, it's just an editorial note, which is they're named after the same company from the TV show Severance, uh, but it has nothing to do with uh, de- detaching your brain. It's more about ad tech. Which no, it's all about thing. the future of ad tech, Ari. It's about attention. It's not about severance. Um, yeah, they're super interesting. There's companies sort of like in the wor- privacy workflow space, there's retail media. I, you know, I, I think that I'm very excited about a bunch of stuff like, you know, CTV outside the U.S. is... Um, is very different from the US. I mean, ourselves and and, and Eric, um, we've co-invested in a business called Lightbox TV, which sort of is a sort of like an enterprise version of Finecast, aggregating like a fragmented TV uh, inventory, whether it's like CTV or linear or wall garden. You know, that's the way I like the businesses to be built. They're really building for problems in the space. So the other thing that you touched on, Ari, which is super interesting is like, you know, private equity is now very, very active in this market. 
And so obviously MIQ are, you know, one of the great untold ad tech stories, uh, I think. Uh, a billion dollar valuation, Gorman and Lee, big shout out to them. That's a, an amazing achievement from, from them. There's a bunch of those companies being bought this year. Like, so, you know, private equity has been involved in the acquisition of uh, and funding of companies like Captify, TapTap, LoopMe, SeaTag, Bliss. And they were all like 100 million plus deals so you know the ad network is getting a, a lot of play here but the exciting companies are the ones thinking beyond cookies and ids and there's and there's lots of innovation going on in europe and in apac for that matter as well yeah wow I, the number of names you just rattled off is coming to mind we also in our last episode talked about id5 which eric and i are both personally invested in as well let, let's hand it over to eric for a second so as a u.s investor how do you think about the opportunities in Europe? Do you think about investing directly in companies based there or um, more about, you know, kind of follow on when they're ready to come to the U.S. market? Traditionally, it was the latter. So uh, uh, we've been investing as a fund now four or five years. Um, for the first three and a half years, almost four years, we invested in um, two companies. So ID5 and Zotap, both under that thesis, right? Like these were, you know, businesses that... Uh, great proof of concept, ready to scale, wanted to enter into the U.S. So that was two investments total over the course of, you know, called call three and a half, four years. Over the course of the past year or so, we've invested in three European companies. A, greatly increasing our pace. B, companies that are building, you know, in Europe very, very early. You know, maybe there's a plan to help, uh, you know, kind of push into the U.S., maybe not for, for a little while. And I think that increase um, is coming from the fact that there's a lot of innovation to Karen's point coming out of, of Europe right now you know some of it is born out of the you know privacy and, and regulation and environment there and, and some of it is just like great teams great great companies with with, with interesting ideas so we're, um, we're we're investing in European startups right now and you know again with an eye towards eventually you know scaling to the US we've got one working on now. That you know is is doing that plan, but we've got companies like Pool, which is uh, spelled with three O's, P O O O L. They're building a, a, a sort of lightweight subscription uh, platform for for publishers, and it's a great business. And a hundred percent of their customers are European. One of one of my uh, favorite things to do uh, when I was traveling more pre COVID was to go to New Mexico and tweet all the incredibly poorly named startups <laughs> that would have tiny booths there, and I think that may have been more of a German mostly thing German, than a European mostly, thing. <laughs> yeah, mo mostly German, uh, you know, sort of like contra deals, I reckon, rather than actually paid for boots. Exactly, those were great um, threads. So sorry, I missed them. <laughs> I miss them too. Um, so I guess that kind of tees up the question. Is there one European market or is each country different? I, I feel like we just rattle off a lot of names and probably 75% of them were based in London. Yeah. You, you kind of have to look at an aggregate rather than just one market. Like, so, you know, when we look at companies right now, it's, it, it goes back to my original thesis about companies being able to scale via partnerships. So like, you know, as a, as a fund where we're doing like partnerships globally, like to help resell some of the tech that we have like in Japan and Southeast Asia. Yeah, like Germany is very different from the UK. UK is very different from Southern Europe. Like they are countries in, in isolation, but that doesn't stop you being able to build the tech that can be used in those countries by another business. I mean, that's the way I think about fragmentation and it's a new way to think about building that out. I mean, obviously there's companies building for Eric's viewpoint as well where you you know the you go to the U you start in the UK or France, 
you get some traction and then you raise a bunch of money and get to the US. That's the that's that's the right. sort of obvious obvious route. But now we're seeing a different viewpoint as well. And obviously with the ad network piece as well, you can build ad networks in Europe, you can have managed service teams and you can get an exit. Like so private equity is definitely buying the ad network. I know we're coming on to that in a minute, but like it's a good point to make. But there there is a route like because the Europeans are the are probably the best in the world at building ad networks. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think you could flip that and say maybe European buyers are the worst at asking for transparency. Um, that that, 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 that was, could be true that as well. That was quite a statement. <laughs> as a person who's built an ad network, I feel That's attacked. Yeah, it's an attack on you and your good your good reputation, Eric. <laughs> the reputation of uh, so there's this kind of type of ad tech company in Europe um, that I've run against as a competitor many times, which is like you have in your U.S. company you have the best you know ad server in the world, uh, maybe a monopoly ad server, and there are like ten guys in Paris in an office who build their own, and they're more, and they're successful selling it to every French publisher. And that's it. That's their whole ambition. They'll never leave France. And the same thing for a lot of like rich media companies in Germany or whatever it is. And they're not really scalable businesses. They're local. Yeah, but that smells of opportunity to me, Ari. If there was a couple of those businesses all over Europe, that's called a roll up. And that is happening right now. Like, so, you know, you're getting a lot of that happening uh, at the minute. So that that's a good thing, I think. I mean, they could be very nice businesses. They're small businesses. Small nice but if you businesses. join all them together in a, in a roll up, you know, that's that's happening for certain sectors. Well, you know, we were on the path talking about business models. So let's just jump into that. Um, so um, many um, European tech companies end up with sort of a managed service ad net model more than a tech model. And I, I'm not sure why that is. I think it's a little bit because of uh, the scale of individual European countries, maybe not supporting the staffing required to have a tech model. But I'm interested in, in your point of view because you've written about this recently. Yeah, I just kind of, I got attacked the other day. Well, I call it attack it was somebody just like ribbing me about being a SAS fascist. Uh, and I'm not really <laughs> a fascist or a SAS fascist for that matter. Yeah, it's the recurring versus recurring argument, right? You know, managed service is a lot easier to spin up than, as you say, like having pure play SaaS businesses, right? A lot of the agencies in, in this part of the world would not have the same kind of like profit margins or revenue that the US would have. So it's almost easier to do re to the managed service business. And like, look, it's a dark arts here, really. You know what I mean? A lot of trading deals done, you know, people you know, but there's nothing wrong with that. Like you can scale that. That can be a very successful business. Like, you know, you've many, many examples I rattled off there from like Tap Tap to Bliss, SeaTag, that are ad networks and getting massive valuations on private equity and they're all growing they're all making profit so it's 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 a very different viewpoint i i i think the ad networks get a bad bad rap but once you get outside the us it just becomes harder to have, to to run a tech business because it just is difficult so that that means that like like MOQ can build a business to a billion dollars uh, revenue and you know they just bought the managed service business from uh, the OEM, the OEM guys, or US company anyway, they just bought that managed service, and they're building and building and building towards you know possibly a two billion dollar valuation. Right, so it's incredible. Like, like they could be the most valuable ad network of all time. Uh, well, obviously, barring Google's ad AdSense and, <laughs> and, and GDN, obviously. 
Well, I think uh, SeedTag is a great example. You mentioned them. I did an in-depth interview with them on Architecture TV, which if you're a subscriber, you can access. SeedTag, for those who aren't aware, is an ad network that's very focused on contextual and semantic meaning of web pages. Um, so it's effectively a contextual ad network. Um, former Google folks founded it, doing very well based in Spain. Now, to an American, that would be insane. If I, <laughs> if I went out to Eric, I called Eric and said, hey, Eric, I want an investment. I'm creating a contextual ad network. What would you say, Eric? <laughs> Actually, wait, hold on. Uh, if it was Ari Preparo, the answer would not be no. Um, but yeah, I mean, t- typically, you know, the, the, that pitch would, um, in 2023, you know, typically get some pushback. But I've also, I've changed my mind a little bit on these managed service models, partly because of what Kieran said in, in that, you know, if you, um, if you reach a certain scale, these can be like I- incredibly successful businesses and successful outcomes. But yeah, so ad, ad so, networks aren't getting the early stage investment at this time. I, I really think the difference is on the customer side, because if you had a contextual ad network in the U.S. and you called up your agency friends and said, give me an IO, it's great. They would, they would say no too. They would say, no, I have the trade desk. I have a team. We know what we're doing. We use data from third parties. In Europe, because it's a smaller market, you may have an agency in a country like Italy um, that is pretty short-staffed, that has to cover a lot of different you know, campaigns and campaign types, and uh, they may be very welcoming of that pitch. Like, it sounds great. Yeah, but there's a lot of managed service money in the U.S. as well. I mean, sure, there's a low, there is, low, there massive ad network. So, like, the IO, like, I think people want to kind of sweep this type of thing under the carpet. But if anything, the IO is stronger than ever, right? If you hit, hit hit a fragmented market like we're hitting now, the idea of like an ad network, so like, it's like retail media, for instance, right? I don't think it's going to be the programmatic sort of uh, um, nirvana everything is going to be. I think you're going to have like, you know, basically the likes of Walmart already has a wall garden and Sainsbury's and, and uh, Tesco are going to be wall gardens. But sort of the second tier load, that'll be aggregated by ad networks and sold on a direct IO basis into agencies because none of those want to have any data leakage. They'll not want their data out in the bid stream because that data is very valuable. So right. like, I think that there's a huge upside in starting ad networks now. I know people would probably are getting sick in their mouths that listen to this to me, some mad Irishman talk about ad networks uh, <laughs> when we're in the problematic. Uh, but that's the fact, hey. There is money yeah. to be made. In it, and that's why we're investing in some some managed service businesses. I think there's uh, opportunity um, also in uh, building the the picks and shovels that are going to uh, power this next generation of, of yep. ad networks and managed service businesses, which is what's something we're we're very interested in because you know if if Karen's right and that you know trend continues and catches fire and you know uh, you see large ones built you know around these next generation uh areas like retail and ctv i think you can build great you know software and technology businesses to, to help power and complement them so i think there's a, there's, a, there's a wave here we're, we're both right we're getting like sort of mid-tier managed service businesses coming to us and asking us to work with portfolio companies because they can enhance what they do they can make more money you're totally right and that's a, i think that's a good thing and that's sort of a byproduct of the fragmentation so it's all upside lads yeah, I think our uh, architecture contributor, Eric Sufert, um, has the phrase, uh, everything's an ad network, which has gotten a lot of traction around uh, these parts. Uh, but I will I will point out that it was a full 10 years ago that I wrote a very influential article called Let a Thousand Ad Networks Bloom. Uh, I remember that one. Ad age, so you should. I do too. <laughs> Good article, that one, Artie. 
It was a good one. It was one of my best. All right. So now, while we're talking about Europe, we have to talk about this, what I would have to describe as bizarre uh, news, <laughs> that the European Union has, I'm going to read this, unconditionally allowed a joint venture of Deutsche Telekom, Orange, Telefonica, and Vodafone Group to effectively create their own ID using uh, telecom data, using their IP addresses. And so presumably this is an ID that uh, will be available to advertisers and publishers. A lot of the details have not been announced, but the main news being that they have an antitrust exemption to allow this joint venture to exist. The reason I I preface this as bizarre, and I I will accept my biases as an American, is like all the news out of Europe for the past several years has been uh, privacy advocates slapping down American for doing anything with IDs, and this news appears to fly in its face and say the telecom companies, which are never known as being good guys in this whole thing, now have free reign, they can use their data, et cetera, et cetera. So, Karen, tell me why I'm wrong, and this is totally normal good news. I mean, I don't know what to make of myself, actually. I just did a, we do a mad tech sketch thing on Exchange Wire every week, and I've actually sketched this out. It'll be on the site tomorrow, but just to give you give you the, the listeners an overview of what this is, effectively, it's first party. So Trust works with publishers and advertisers that have with user targeting. And then under GDPR, you have to have users opt in. So you can opt in on the particular site. And then a random token is issued against that user, right, on the site. And then the publisher has fed that token and then they can basically append specific data points. And then apparently, and I've just seen this yesterday, by the way, apparently TrustPID is now working with Prebid, which enables that publisher to push that ID into the bid stream via an SSP into DSP. So they're already up and running with it already, yeah. right? Now, it is only first party. It's not cross-site targeting. So you don't they won't be able to kind of merge an ID from the advertiser thing. So it's very much first party. And they're, they're stressing this very heavily. The only problem I have with all this is the sort of like, the update is actually on the Trust PID site. It's not on the phone itself. So you actually have to physically go to the site and, and opt out if you opt in. I think there's a 30-day lifespan of the cookie. So it's not persistent. But there's a couple of things here I, which people need to think about. Can it scale? You know, can will people opt into it, right? Will it pass the privacy advocate test, right? As I said at the top of the program, Johnny Ryan, Max Rem will be all over this. Like, it feels creepy. They think it's creepy and all the rest of it. Then the platform privacy piece, which basically, if Apple or Google decide to launch a VPN as standard on the phone, it kind of kills this full stop. And the last one, which I think is most important, is telcos are crap at ad tech. Many alt tacos have tried and failed to build something in ad tech. So AT&T, Singtel lost a billion, Verizon. There was a company called Weave, which was a basically leveraging O2 data in the UK to sell ads as an ad network. All failed. So while this might work, the execution might kill it in the end. Right, right. So uh, I just did a geek out a little bit because what we know about this doesn't make sense. Let's just start there. So what they said is, first of all, like you said, it's it's only on site, first party, not third party, which immediately begs the question of like, what value is it? We already uh, can track. Publishers can already track first party pretty well. Then they they said that it's basically a hashed IP address. They didn't use the word hashed. They said it was a random ID based on the IP address, which I'm going to assume means it's hashed. 
But if it's the IP address, then once again, why do we need this service? Any publisher can hash their IP address. The IP address is visible. And then they don't say, what they don't say is that they're going to do anything to make this IP address, say, persistent across sessions, like, for example, on your phone and then on your laptop across device, or um, over time when IPs naturally you know, rotate. They didn't say that. So what they did say, in my opinion, has no value whatsoever. What they didn't say would immediately run afoul of lots of privacy regulations. Uh, so that's my hot take on this, which is the announcement is so empty of actual details that makes no sense. Yeah, um, maybe it's a precursor to something bigger that they're going to probably launch their own clean room. But as soon as they get into that, Ari, they're in the choppy waters of privacy. And, you know, Europe is like, it's, it's like, you know, they're like piranhas, the advocates here. <laughs> It's true. They will, they will literally eat you alive. Like they're already all over this. Johnny Rain appears on the national television station in RT, thinking he's a hero, like you know, the savior of mankind, because uh, he's saving us from from the cookie. So you've got guys like him who are motivated to bring this down. So I'm not sure how successful this will be. Uh, right, and and the idea of appending additional data because the telecoms obviously have a lot of data about the users is interesting, but you would have to do it very carefully in some sort of privacy protected clean room. And once again, the more protections you have, the less useful it is. Um, that's kind of a general rule. I guess the sort of one thing is it is persistent. I don't know where it sits, but uh, like it's it's a persistent ID. So maybe that's a sort of U, USP for this. But I, yeah. as you say. Most publishers can do is this kind of thing. Uh, to be honest, with you, I, I'd rather they didn't do this, and we just kind of went ahead and focused, doubled down on the likes of attention and sort of contextual and first party. I think that's the way to go. This just feels like more privacy hackery. We don't really need this, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get your point. Um, it, another programming note, which is we interviewed um, Blockgraph, which is an interesting company here in the U.S. that effectively allows cable TV companies to share their unique IDs with advertisers in a clean room kind of environment. It has nothing to do with um, the blockchain, even though they are called Blockgraph. All right, so um, let's close this conversation out. I think it's a bizarre announcement. It is um, definitely enough to make a lot of probably American privacy people lose their minds because they've been, you know, fined and abused and run through the ringer in Europe, and now this is being allowed to happen. But we'll, we'll see how it ends up. This will fail. This will fail. This will fail. Eric, do you have a prediction? Is this going to fail? Yeah, this is going to fail. I think uh, what Karen said earlier, which is the, uh, the the history of large telcos, you know, uh, well-intentioned trying to build ad networks, ad businesses, it's been a 100% failure rate. And I think because there's some just inherent flaws with this whole thing, and uh, it's, um, it's a lot harder than it, than it looks from the outside. All right, let's, let's do some a news roundup. There's been a good amount of news this week in our world. Uh, let's start with Uber. Um, so it was reported that Uber had a $500 million run rate on ads, 315,000 advertisers, and is trying to get to a billion in ads by 2024. It's a very unique form of retail media, in a sense. They had brought on, um, oh, I can't remember his name, the head of Seismic to run it. Um, does anyone want to help me with the fellow's the name? Ger the German lad. Dr. Dr. Mark... Uh, Mark Right there? Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Eric. Um, you are uh, the best producer we could ever have on the show. <laughs> Wait, that's my title? <laughs> You're doing double duty. You're filling in the notes, helping me out with the names. Um, so uh, are these, I mean, what, what's, the, what's the hot take on this? Maybe, Eric, you could go first. Yeah, I think this is awesome. I mean, you know, like, wow, a 
consumer app that has no content is a $500 million run rate uh, advertising business. And they think this is going to double in a year and become a billion dollar ad business. And it just got started. So I think right. n- number one, this is huge validation of the whole thesis behind, you know, Eric S's, uh, you know, everything is, is an ad network. And if you've got scale relationship with the consumer and, and, you know, for first party data and a you know, great ability to you know, produce an ad format, like, wow, you, you can build something big. So I think there's, there's great validation there. I think this is just, just the beginning, uh, in terms of, you know, perhaps rideshare, but just other of these. I think Karen's used the word utility publishers, you know, starting to emerge and, and scale. And, uh, you know, it's just interesting because they're growing at such an accelerated rate, so much more accelerated than the, the sort of core ad tech market in terms of growth, that that growth is coming from places. And I think that growth is coming from walled gardens who are losing signal. Um, it's coming from perhaps like publishers and sort of open exchange. So I think this is this is fascinating and like super, super bullish on this trend. One thing that I'm really interested in is that they they haven't provided this breakdown as far as I know, is how much of this is actually digital out of home advertising versus in app? Uh, because in many jurisdictions, um, they have the um, digital signage on top of the Ubers. Uh, I believe in New York, they don't. Only yellow cabs do. But in some jurisdictions, they have that ability to show those digital ads and have been experimenting in that area for for many years. I would love to see some figures on how much of that is the growth versus um, recommending ads in in the app while you're in the car. My my sense is it's in the app. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it's the, in the app. There's three hundred thousand advertisers, so you know that, that scale portends you know activity happening within the app. This is a great trend for the industry. Like uh, this is why I love fragmentation. So, this this is why I'm bullish on the future of ad tech as well. Like Uber may not connect into the programmatic pipes, but they're going to use a lot of third-party ad tech to power some parts of this, which is really interesting. And I like the fact that they've kind of like tapped into a load of new advertisers on their platform. So, you know, Deliveroo have something similar here, by the way, like, 70% 70% of the people who use Uber Eats and delivery, by the way, don't know what the order when they're on. Like, so there's a huge opportunity to serve ads in that sort of thing. I think most of the money at the minute is coming from the real-time in-transit people. So if you're heading to Piccadilly Circus from here, for instance, you might get a bunch of like, you know, ads from McDonald's or whatever saying like, come to Piccadilly, right. blah, blah. So this is great. Like it takes away from... There'll be more of these businesses, and and I do call them an exchange where utility publishers for years and years and years. It's almost like the advertising business is secondary to their main business, which I think is going to make them really good because from from a user experience, because they're not trying to overpopulate with ads because the user because their their primary business is getting you from A to B or getting food delivered to you, you know. So it's very exciting, and I kind of I know some people bucket them into the commerce media space, but. It's kind of like the next evolution of first party publishers where the excitement is like you can target these these really rich audiences. You don't need to go to Facebook and Google, which makes my heart rise with joy that we're taking money out of their pocket like uh, because none of those guys give us money for sponsorship so you know so I'm I'm delighted to see Uber and other companies rise and it's good for the industry as well I think. 
Yeah, I, I think the model of having a challenging, um, competitive business as your core and then throwing some, you know, very high margin advertising sponsorship revenue on top is, is very attractive to lots of retailers. I know we're not calling them a retailer, but still it is attractive to a lot of retailers. And the whole thing is built around, around scale and consumer engagement. That Uber has both of those things at, you know, high levels. So, uh, being able to suggest McDonald's or whatnot makes a ton sense and, uh, and intent think, Ari they've got plenty intent. of intent you know what I mean that's it's in, like these people are doing stuff that advertisers want to, to target like you know whether it's ordering food or going somewhere you know it's super super uh, interesting for a buyer right I, I believe Lyft also announced something in this area about growing advertising revenue I don't have that number those numbers in front of me but um, this won't be the only one the airlines no think about Ryanair right one of the biggest apps here in Europe like you know you could see if this model bears out you can see other entities running these businesses which makes it super interesting for ad tech as well yeah the airlines are interesting because the airlines have had quite a bit of cross promotion revenue for years about hotels obviously and things like that uh, but it doesn't feel as though the engagement has been there um, other than the credit card businesses there, there actually was a report this week I think in semaphore the new publication semaphore that uh, showed that most of the US airlines um, make more money on their credit cards than their flights at this point <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which was kind of fascinating but that's a little bit off topic um, the other big news this week was the trade desks earnings report which is um, starting to become kind of like the Lollapalooza of ad tech uh, the happy day everyone's <laughs> excited about <laughs> um, so um, they had another blowout uh, report 24% year-over-year growth um, uh, about six billion dollars in media is now going through their pipes um, which is a lot um, I think they're clearly being positioning themselves as the independent tech company in advertising, you know, full stop advertising, not just programmatic, but, you know, looking at the global advertising business in all screens and all media. So um, is there a takeaway here or is it just, you know, good execution? Wow. Like great execution. So TTD is up as a, as a stock um, 1100%. In the past five years, so you know, kind of poking uh, a giant hole in the idea that there can't be a successful standalone ad tech public company, nor can that uh, that, that company make money for for investors. I think that's um, thing one. Thing two is you know, with a lot of folks being uh, somewhat concerned about the macro, justifiably for for twenty three, um, they confirmed their Q one forecast. Um, so I think that's interesting. Uh, you know, made a lot of positive comments around uh, this year being transformational for TV, particularly obviously CTV and uh, adoption of of UID. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's you know they're they're, they're firing on on our soldiers. And I think the the other thing that's that's interesting is again, it's you know accelerated growth, right? Like grew twenty four percent in Q four, and competitors of theirs are 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 not growing as fast. So again, I think it's interesting right. to see the the share shift that's um, that's happening in in, in real time, and you know, hopefully the emergence of you know new, new independent leaders. I've been very appreciative of their share price, and that I get invited to really nice parties in New York that are almost entirely funded by their uh, by their share <laughs> price, eleven hundred percent increase. Uh, but the uh, the um, the bear ninety five percent customer retention, ninety five. That's amazing. Uh, the bear case on Trade Desk has always been that 
it, that they're a great company, great execution, but there was a limit to how fast they could ultimately grow because they were basically taking market share from second-tier GSPs. They had the organic growth, but at some point they're going to hit a wall where programmatic isn't big enough to support the market cap uh, and that um, they'd have to do something else to get there. But it doesn't appear to be the case. They keep running the same game plan. They really haven't changed the game plan much at all, um, and they keep showing the growth. Uh, Karen, what do you think? Do they run out of growth at some point? I mean, Jeff Green is the greatest of all time. He is. Like, there's no, there's no, he's the greatest ad tech CEO of all time. What a legend. Like, nothing but praise and admiration for, for Jeff. And he's able to talk to Wall Street that, like, no other ad tech CEO has ever been able to do. But you're probably right. I mean, the CTV thing will, will probably, it, it will run out of steam at some stage and they'll have to have a second act. And maybe that second act is commerce media. And, and maybe that's when, you know, they start buying some companies. I mean, there's a rumor on the, on the street that, well, Crypto is up for sale and one of the suitors potentially could be the trade desk. So maybe there's an acquisition there and they go full frontal into the commerce media space and and basically build a narrative around that and build the business around that. So like, don't, you know, I wouldn't bet against Jeff. He's two or three moves ahead of the rest of the industry. So, you know, they'll have something else lined up. But but yeah, it's amazing the growth. Hey? Um, I'd say Eric would have loved to be in, in, in a seat in, in a trade desk. <laughs> um, I think we all would have been loved to be in a seat yes. in a trade desk. Understatement of the of the decade. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, a few people have made a lot of money off that. You know, it's the gift that keeps on giving for a lot of uh, VCs. Uh, no name. I was at, I was at one of these. I was at one of these parties uh, at an undisclosed location in Manhattan, uh, and my wife looked at me and said, uh, "Why didn't you invest in the trade decks in the seed round?" And I, <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I'm saying. You don't bet against Jeff these days. So you know, you're right. They, they could run out of. You know, steam on the seat. Not this year, but next year they're going to have to probably change the narrative. But he, Jeff is the master of talking to Wall Street. He's he's unbelievable. I mean, I watch him on CNBC and I'm blown away by how he's able to kind of weave that narrative so well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's uh, cover the last bit of news. This came out about last week, so it's a little old, but we didn't get a chance on the last week's pod to talk about it. EMX goes under and Yahoo SSP gets divested. I think the story here is twofold. One is the SSP business is very competitive and difficult and an economic downturn makes it a lot less attractive. Uh, and the second thing I uh, think is that, um, as we know from a lot of research from people like Jounce Media, the average publisher has 10 SSPs on their site. Losing one or two has literally no effect on them or on, or on anybody else. Uh, so that's my hot take uh, to start this out. What, what do you guys think? Is the SSP business a fundamentally unattractive business? I think it's fundamentally unattractive. Um, I just think that, uh, yeah, your, your point that there's like 10 or 12 SSPs on a, on a given page, um, or, or working with a, with a given publisher, like why, right? You know, if we look at it on the other side with the DSP, we just, you know, talked about Trade Desk for five, 10 minutes. And, um, you know, it's got like two competitors and it's, you know, it's a, it's a very much a, an or market, you know, what one could expect that, you know, if there's no like real, sustainable advantage for an SSP, it becomes commoditized. And this could be the, the year that we start to see real consolidation. So there's a couple of things here. I, I think you're right about the SSP. Most of the SSPs here in Europe are just advertising for buy-side people, agency salespeople. And I think that's where the differentiation comes, demand from the agency groups. That's where you're getting differentiation because a lot of it's very similar. You know, the pipes are the same. I think that that's where 
you'll see, you know, it consolidated into a couple of big players. On the DSP side, yeah, you, I, you're right. We probably need another couple of DSPs spun up with the looks of it because the trade desk is only well. But Yahoo, for me, is interesting. I, I, I'm just recalling that Tabula acquisition. And I remember I, I wrote about it on the First Party Capital uh, newsletter. And I thought when they brought in Tabula, they were going to shutter Gemini. And I just said, they're going to shutter the native business and potentially just not focus on one part of the business. And sure enough, I, I was right in that one. And, and Sarah Fisher wrote a piece about um, the lady from Axios, the media writer, uh, contributor. And she was mentioning that, you know, the plans for Yahoo, or, or they, they want to focus on the, the three pillars, which is the email business, the sports business, and, and, and the finance business. And, you know, they would probably bundle the DSP into the email business because of the first party signal there and the the finance business they're looking probably to to have like a sports betting piece uh, and then the finance business they're going to have like a robin hood thing and then the, ultimately they're going to spin out the whole company it'll be like three different companies and apollo have made their money and move on so this is just a precursor i think to to a wider breakup of the yahoo brand it's just as a sort of uh, wider theme on on this one um sure. who yeah. will get the exclamation point in the breakup <laughs> um, so, um, <laughs> how much do you think that's worth? Maybe, uh, what's his face might buy it again? The guy is the boy, the guy from Oath. What's his name? Uh, Armstrong. Tim? Yeah, Tim Timmy, Armstrong, might, yeah. Timmy might buy the exclamation mark. <laughs> it's worth something. Um, all right, this was a great conversation. Let's let's call it with that. Uh, Eric, Karen, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure, and uh, you know, big fan of your work. Appreciate it. Everyone should follow both Karen and Exchange Wire on Twitter. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.